If you have your Bibles, let's take them out and we'll open them to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 16. If you are a guest, then I want to remind, or not remind you, I want to say to you that we do expositional teaching, which just means we take books of the Bible and we go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's 80% of what you're going to get uh, at Fellowship in the Course of a year, and we're studying Genesis 12 to 25 right now. We had studied 1 through 12 five years ago, so we're picking up this next section of Genesis. When you teach this way, really the most important thing is always keep it connected to the context. So the passages we pick up today, you know, they're always in a context, always connected to others, and we need to reach back and grab that. So I want to do that quickly. Let me, let me start here. Genesis 1 and 2. God reveals his original intent, and what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God, God's intention is a people of God in the place of God with access to the presence of God. And so when you read Genesis 1 and 2, what do you read there? You go, well, there's Adam and Eve. Oh, there, there's the people of God, Adam and Eve, and where are they? Well, they're, they're in the place of God, and what's there? Well, they have access to the presence of God in that place. Then Genesis 3 hits, and they rebel. At the core, no pun intended, they didn't trust God. They didn't trust that he was enough. Things that we've saying just now. They didn't trust he was enough. They didn't trust his way. So we get, we're going to figure this out on our own. We think we have a better way. And in that rebellion, what happened? Well, think about it. The people of God are cast out from the place of God and the very presence of God. And the question arises when you read your Bible and it's progressively revealed. The, the question arises, oh, how is God, if he's God, going to fulfill his original intent? I mean, can he? Will he? Of course, a hint's given there in Genesis 3.15. But then we come to Genesis 12, and, and as we're moving through the Bible, you guys, we talk about progressive revelation. It, it, it's Honestly, it's fuzzy, clearer, clear, clear, clearest in Christ. It's all progressively revealed. Well, at Genesis 12, God shows us how he's going to fulfill his original intent. Genesis 12, we call it a pivotal moment in redemptive history. And Rob taught that a few weeks back. And in that chapter, God chooses a man named Abram. And he says to Abram, Abram, I am going to make through you a great nation. And you're going to possess this land and your descendants will possess it forever. And through you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I want you to think about this. Connect these dots. So that sounds like he said to Abram, Abram, through you, I will have a people of God in the place of God and all will be blessed because they will be in my presence, have access to my presence. That's, that's the blessing part of that. And so you see, through Abram, God says, I'm going to fulfill my original intent. Now, we're just a few chapters into the Bible, and we're beginning to see that God is going to relate to humanity through promises. God makes promises to man, made promise to Abram. And man's going to respond and relate to God through faith. God promises we trust by faith. Abram is a man who's learning to live by faith in the promises of God. We noted last week that 
as we're reading this story, there's this fundamental structure that seems to, to hold together the life of faith. And, and, and Rob described it in this way. There is the reality, the R, remember the big R he had up here, and then there's the promise, the P that was up here. And the life of faith is actually living life in between the reality of life and the promises of God and holding them both in tension. That, that's a picture of the life of faith. And we're learning, and we'll learn more and more, you all, that, that faith recognizes while we hold our reality, because you don't deny your reality, you hold your reality, and you hold the promise, what faith comes more and more to understand is that the promise is the greater reality. The promise is the greater reality. Now, that's true right now. Now, I know it's not true in full, but it's true right now, and it will be true in full in the future, and it'll be true forever and ever. Now, Abram's story, we're going to pick it up now in chapter 14. It, 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 it continues with what's honestly the oddest chapter in Abram's life. I say odd because it's a war story. And Abram's not really a warrior. I mean, it's the only military campaign he's ever involved in. It's an odd story because a stranger shows up, you'll see it next week, with a weird name. We don't even know where he's from, and he steals the whole show. He steals the scene. We're going to study chapter 14 in two parts. I'm going to take 1 through 12, or 1 through 16. Uh, Rob is going to take verses 17 through 24 next week. I want you to know that the main point of the story, this episode, is not in our text today. So it's a bit of a cliffhanger. The main point of the story is next week when Rob shows us how Abram views this very victory. Now, two things that we'll see in this first part. For those of you kind of outline-minded, we're going to look at, try and give you something to keep in, you can hang on to. We're going to look at the conquest of kings and we're going to look at the courage of faith. We're going to look at the conquest, give you these C words. Conquest of kings, verses one through 12. And then the courage of faith, that's verses 13 through 16. One last thing before we read the text. In chapter 13, we noted that faith, there's an element of faith that's really about letting go. If I can say it this way, don't go too far with this, but it's passive. There's a, the nature of faith is that it's passive. Remember, Abram, take whatever you want, gave the land away. Well, when we pick up chapter 14, it's like we go, wait a minute, it looks like faith is active because in chapter 14, it's not let it go. Abram actually picks up the sword and he goes to fight. And I want you to get in your mind's eye that biblical faith is one coin with two sides. You cannot separate it. Biblical faith is both passive, letting go, and it is active. It's picking up the sword and fighting. You see that? Don't separate these two. This is biblical faith. Now, it raises a question. Which do I do in this situation? You know, okay, this is where I'm at. Do I pick up the sword or do I step back and, and I let go and wait? Well, the text is going to instruct us as we, as we walk through it. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do this one more time, if you don't mind. I'll ask you to stand as we read God's word. 
I'm going to read it from the New American Standard. If you'll follow along in your Bibles, I'm going to, you know, this is, I've read these names so many times. Every time I read the names, I say them different. It's probably different in your Bible. Let me make this point. The names aren't important. They're not the most important thing. So bear with me as we go through this military campaign. God's word to us today from Genesis 14. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedarlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedarlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. I want you to know that whole section is the conquest of kings. Now we're going to look at the courage of faith. Verse 13, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Father, we pray you'd add your blessing to this public reading of your word, and that by your spirit you would teach, and we would hear, and in faith respond. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, we've read the text, okay? So, so there you have, that, you, know, you have the text in writing. We've read it. I thought it would be instructive for us to actually see the text. I mean, literally see this battlefield and see the movements of troops and what's going on because there are lessons for us even as we see the map. And all that happened. So, Rob, if you'll pull this map up, we're going to look at map of the promised land. We'll hold it right there. And uh, let me say this kind of as, as, as preparatory to this. You know, obviously the promised land of, of Israel as we know it today. But you remember in the very beginning, Mesopotamia is up here. 
I just want to remind you, Euphrates River up here, Mesopotamia. This is where Abram came from when he came down and came in and then went to Egypt. So Mesopotamia up here. Well, there were these four Mesopotamian kings. And the head of them seems to be Ketaleomer, okay? It's four Mesopotamian kings who are up here. And at some time that we don't know, they came down and they conquered this whole area. Now, how do we know that? Well, because as the text tells us, there's these five kings down here near Sodom and Gomorrah, which is about right there. These five kings who it says for 12 years paid tribute to the four kings. Everybody with me on that? What do they mean, pay tribute? They, they said every year we have to send them food, livestock, grain, taxes. They did it for 12 years. But what did they do in the 13th year, these kings? What did they do? They rebelled. And it's what it says. Enough. We're done, you know, giving them our stuff. And so in year 13, they rebel. In year 14, <laughs> right, Ketterleomer grabs his other kings and he comes down and he decides they're going to come down and they're going to take what's theirs and take it back. So they're going to come set the record straight. Are you with me? Now, when they come down, they're going to follow this path. It's called the King's Highway. They come down and as they come down, the text tells us they were defeating people as they went. So they didn't just come straight down to the guys they wanted to do business, you know, wanted to deal with. They took care of business all the way down. And it says in this area, there were, in Deuteronomy it describes them, there were giants in that land. There were mighty men in that land. And these kings come down and take it all. Go ahead and let the slide run, Rob, and we'll see how they, uh, how they move down the king's highway. They come from Mesopotamia. They come down, they're taking spoil. They're defeating other kings and kingdoms all along the way. They go past Sodom and Gomorrah. They go all the way down to the very southern tip of the Negev. And then they go northwest to Kadesh, and it says they turn back, and now they go over to the Valley of Siddim. Stop it right there. Two times this is mentioned, the Valley of Siddim. So here's Sodom and Gomorrah, we think. So they're in the Valley of Siddim. They gather. It's four against five, four kings against five. Okay, the four defeat the five, which includes the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says they fled into these tar pits. Well, there's these tar pits in this area that uh, they, they, when it says they fell into... It, it doesn't mean that they, like, they died and went in. It's, that same Hebrew word can be used like someone sliding off a camel. In other words, they, they went into it to hide, which makes more sense because in the next few verses, the king of Sodom shows up. So it's not that they fell in the tar pits and died. They went in the tar pits and hid. And some actually fled to the hills, right? They went to the hills, and this is the guy who's going to come eventually to tell um, Abram of, of what they've done. Well, they defeat them, they defeat those kings, and then they make their way north. By the way, Abram's right here at Hebron. They make their way north, and they head out. Go ahead and let the slide play. So with all this spoil and booty, they go north. Now they're going through the promised land on the west side of the Jordan, all the way up to Dan. Stop right there. This is where Abram comes in. Abram finds out they've taken Lot, which, by the way, had they not taken Lot, the story wouldn't occurred as it does. It's interesting, isn't it? So God in his sovereignty, they take a lot and Abram's pulled into the battle. God's making a point here as well. One of the things I want you to see is that the kings came down one way and went out another. One of the things I want you to see is that the kings, when they came down to deal with the four, five southern kings, they didn't go straight to those five southern kings. It's like they northwest went to Kadesh, then they came over. Why the 
Why the detour, so to speak? Why the path instead of a direct path? Why the indirect path? The text is going to show us because they're making a point. But Abram now says, they got my nephew Lot. Abram takes off. And I want you to see when Abram chases them down to Dan, it would be like you and I saying today, hey, hey, we need to take care of this. We're going to go capture our relatives. And we today set out for Jackson. 124 miles to Jackson, Tennessee. So Abram's going to Jackson, you know, to go track him down. This was not like right next door, they got him. So Abram, go ahead and let the slide roll. Abram chases them down 100 plus, 120 miles, all the way to Dan. There he splits up, does the night attack, defeats them, takes all the stuff, but then chases them out to Damascus. And then Abram brings all those goods all the way back down to Hebron. Still hold the map right there for a moment. Now again, when you look at the map, you notice they came down one way, they go out another way. They, they conquer more than they had before. Why? What does God, the author of the text, want us to literally see, you know, graphically here, but see in our text? You can sh- uh, shut that down, Rob. I think the text makes it pretty explicit what's going on and what we're to see. I want you to notice something in it. When he's describing the conquest of the kings, in verses 1 through 12, he uses one word 28 times. 20, I mean, it's only 12 verses. I mean, come on, 28 times? You know what the word is. What's the word he uses 28 times? It's, it's annoying. King. 28 times, king, 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 king. That's 15. I'll stop because it just gets to you. But even when you're reading it, don't you read it and go, you already mentioned that it's a king of so on. King, 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 king. When you get to the conquest of faith, the courage of faith, rather, and you see those verses, Abram steps into the scene. How many times is the word king used? None. Is that an accident? No. What, what, what do we see? What, is it, what jumps out at us in the text when you see it that way? You say, mighty kings who, by the way, are making a point as they come into the land. We're bigger than you. No one can stop us. We'll take what's not ours. We're going to go out the way. You know, they're making a statement of their sovereignty, you see. Kings, mighty kings. You get to Abram and notice how Abram's introduced here. Only time where he's introduced this way. Mighty kings. Abram the Hebrew. This is not going to be fair. Mighty kings. Then Abram the Hebrew. Uh, last week our community group was together and the couple, a couple came in a little bit late because they have a son that's in a baseball league and, and, and he was kind of like, how'd the baseball game go? Man, it was, it was, it was awful. Really, did you lose? No, man, we won. He said, but what's so bad is they switched up this league and now my son's a second grader and his second grade team now plays kindergartners. It's, uh, it's awful. It's just not fair. You know, they crush him. It's the same with this. Mighty kings, Abram the Hebrew. You know, it's like seniors in high school are going to crush the kindergartners. The contrast how, and literally when you read it, and of course we always get in trouble because we always know how stories go, but when you read the story, the tension that arises 
a question comes out of the text and you got to think about it in this way. What we just described, kings come in, conquer. Kings gang up. Hey, will you work with me? Yeah, work with me. Let's go take care of that other king. Hey, do you need some more land? Yeah, come with me and let's take it from him. That was the way of life. That was the way life was lived in those days. And so, you, you, you know, uh, 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 as we read this, we think about it, you might go, well, wait a minute, God promised Abram that land. And the next question is, how's Abram the Hebrew going to match up against mighty kings? So how's Abram going to get the land? And then a bigger question, I think, is this. If Abram gets the land, how's he going to keep it? Because other kings will just gang up, come down and wipe it. Now the answer is exactly what you think. There's no trickery going on here. The answer is Abram takes the land believing the promise. I mean, that, that's what happens. He's got the promise, believes the promise. He goes and fights and he takes the land. And we, we, we need to keep in mind the original audience that was reading this. You always want to go, what is the original audience? See first. You have to actually go 500 years into the future from this and go, who was reading that? Well, who was reading it were the Israelites. 500 years into the future. And they are putting their toe in the water of the Jordan and they're looking across going, we gotta go take that land. Because God said, go take the land. You gotta go fight for it and take it. And when they looked across and they saw that land, do you know what they saw? Just, just what the text was saying here. They saw mighty men and giants. And so they now are looking going, how are we gonna take that from them? And then they read they read what Moses had written. Well, Abram conquered them, believing the promise. And so can we. I don't want you to miss this. To have the, pro- to, I'm thinking the, the P that was up here. Last, to have the promise, you see, is to have God. That's why having the promise. They can defeat the mighty kings. That's why we sing God's presence, God's with us. That's why the promise is the greater reality. Greater reality because it's God and God with us. Now, as I said earlier, his military victory, which is amazing, you know, what he did, uh, is not the main point or the climax of the story. That, that's next week when Abraham says, let me, let me, show you how I view this victory. But there are some lessons here, I think, that are absolutely pertinent to you and I today. So I'm going to offer three. Let me see if I can pull three things from the text that I think are applicable and relevant for you and I right here, right now. The first one is this. I'll repeat these. Our faith, like Abram's, will ebb and flow between wavering and weighty. Between our faith, like Abram's, is gonna, it's going to ebb and flow between, I'll say it this way, weak faith, strong faith. Got to keep this in mind. I mean, this was a mighty victory, yes. I mean, this is like strong faith, Abram. But don't forget, this is the same guy that just a few weeks ago, you know, earlier chapters, he gets in a pickle. He thinks his wife's going to cost him his own life. And so he tells her to lie, to scheme, to save his skin. 
Don't miss this. In a few weeks, he's going to do it again. <laughs> it's like weak, victory, puny. You know, it's, this is, we just go back and forth. This is, this is the nature of biblical faith. And the reason I, I want to make this point is that there are, there are seasons when our faith is on life support. There are. There are times when, when our faith is almost nil. And I'm saying that because in this room right now, some of us are in that place. And the story of Abram's faith and the story of biblical faith tells us that, yes, faith can be weak in a season, but in time it can be strong again. And oh gosh, this side of heaven, it's not gonna be always strong. It's gonna be weak again, but then it can be strong. You see, the point is that Abram's faith is growing. It's not perfect, but it's growing. And I want you to know that this is a place where it's okay to struggle. It's okay to be in this community of faith and doubt and, and have a faith that's just barely hanging on because in this place, we can be together to hold each other up and to nurture each other along in faith. I'm gonna tell you something. There have been seasons in my life, and I've told, I've said these, when I did not have the faith to hold the promise. I'm telling you, there have been seasons in my life when my reality was so crushing that I'm holding my reality, I should rather say, the reality's crushing me, and I don't have the strength hold the promise. I, I just can't get it. And in those days, there have been people who have held the promise for me. That's the, that's the God honest truth. Lisa has held the promise for me many times. Uh, David Arms held the promise for me in a dark, dark days of my life. Bill Wellens has held the promise for me. Michael holds the promise for me sometimes. He doesn't even know he's holding it for me, but he is by his own life. This is a place where faith maybe can take root for the first time. Maybe, but I do want you to know it's a place where you bring your faith in here and it's beaten and battered. It can heal. It can be restored. Like Abraham, our faith will ebb and flow between weakness and strength our whole life. Here's a second lesson I think we can take away. Courageous faith is always a response to God's faithfulness, not an attempt to secure it. I'm gonna say it again. Courageous faith is always a response to God's faithfulness. It's never our attempt to secure God's faithfulness. I'll say it this way. We don't earn God's faithfulness. God is faithful and we respond to his faithfulness. I'm telling you, it's all the way through the text. Look at a few verses. Chapter 12, verses seven and eight. Chapter 12, verses seven and eight. Abram has gone into the land the very first time. And it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and 
Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Don't get these out of order. You know, notice that Abram's a pagan worshiping guy in Ur. And God calls Abram. God comes to Abram. God makes promises to Abram. As soon as Abram's in the land, Abram built an altar to worship God. We don't, we don't worship to get to get to God. Y'all, that's paganism. That's religion. I'm gonna do this, so God, I'm gonna do this and get God. I'll that's the Tower of Babel. I'm gonna build, you know, we if if you do anything like you can earn God's forgiveness, faithfulness, that's that's man's religion. That's our attempt to get to him. That's building the Tower of Babel. No. God initiates, Abram responds in faith. It's always that way. When Abram went down into Egypt, do you know what he did in Egypt? He was unfaithful. And you know what God was to Abram while he was unfaithful in Egypt? What was God to Abram? Faithful. And Abram comes out with more than he went in. And when he came out, do you know where he went? He went straight Bethel Ai, he went straight to the altar again to worship and respond to God's faithfulness. That's chapter 13, verse 4. In chapter 13, verse 18, notice what it says. Then Abram moved his tent, came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What happened just before that? Just before he built the altar, God looked at Abram and said, I want to clarify the promise. I want to make it absolutely clear. You do understand. I'm, I'm giving you this land. This is going to be yours forever. God initiates Abram builds the altar. Thank you, God. Worships God. And then, where do we find Abram? Look at chapter 14, verse 13. When Abram, or uh, the, then the fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, he was living by the oaks of Mamre. It's not, we don't need to go, oh, he's living by these trees. No, he's living by the altar. He stayed at the altar where he lived in communion with his heavenly father. When I say he built an altar and he worshiped, don't think of this as like the 20 minutes we sang, that was our worship. It's just a part of worship. Worship is responding, it's a lifestyle of worshiping, responding with all that we alter, all that God reveals himself to be. It's living in communion with our heavenly father. That, it's the Christian life, living in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Communing with God the Father, living life under submission to God the Father, responding always to his faithfulness with gratitude. Not perfectly, but growing in doing that. I asked earlier, how do you know if we pick up the sword... Or if we drop the sword and step back and let God do what he's doing. How, if that's faith, is those two things. How do we know which one in which circumstance? I can't tell you. But God does. As we are in communion with him. As we're in relationship with God. He, sell, he tells us. He shows us. He guides us. He instructs us by his word through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We know. We know by faith. This is let go and wait. This is pick up the sword and swing out of communion with our God. Courageous faith is always a response to God's faithfulness, not an attempt to secure it. And then let me offer you this last one. 
May we not substitute having the promise and trusting it. May we not substitute, don't substitute, having the promise and trusting it. Y'all, these are two different things. They're similar. They're connected, but they have totally different results and experiences in our life. I've said this a number of occasions where my family during the summers, we, over the last decade, we've gone to a family camp. And at family camp, especially when my kids were little, but I'm still doing it, I'll do it this summer uh, with my two girls. Uh, I'll do the ropes course with them. Everybody know what the ropes course is at a camp? You know, this is, these are the zip lines and all the jumping from the, you know, pamper pole and all that stuff when they strap you in. Well, I'll pick this day and we'll sign up and I'll do the zip lines, you know, this summer with my daughters as I've done in years past. And when you do the zip line, uh, you guys know what, that, you know what that is, that big long line off the big tower that goes down, you strap yourself in. When you do that, they give you a harness. And the harness wraps around your legs, goes here, goes over your neck. I mean, you're just locked in. I mean, you just can't even get out of this thing, you know? And it's got a, this line that goes from the connection to the harness up here, and they connect it on the line, the zip line that goes down. And on the zip line, what you do is you go up this tower... It's probably 60, 50, 60 feet in the air. And you get up there and they got you all strapped in. Then you walk out to where the lines go down from the tower. And they'll put you right on the edge of the, of the tower. So they say, well, you sit down right here. And so you sit down right on the edge of the tower. And in this position, you know, you, your legs are hanging. And you look down and it's 50, 60 feet straight down to the ground. And then they hook you onto the, the cable. You're now on the zip line. And, you know, my daughter's sitting over here, I'm here, and we're getting, you ready to go? I'm ready to go, you know, whatever. And, well, people go up there and do this, and you're standing in line, so you watch people do this. And every once in a while, you know, someone will get to this point, and you go, what's taking so long? Well, you can do, you know, they can't, they can't, they're not going to go. And here's, here's the thing, keep in mind, they have the harness, but they can't trust it. And eventually... You know, they unhook them, they get up, and they have to go walk down the stairs of shame all the way down. <laughs> no shame. We've all, all of us do this, have done this. But if you're there, and if you have the harness, which we do, and you trust it, what do you do? You don't go back that way. Which way do you go? You go this way. And I'm telling you, you just bump yourself And you're just flying out, flying down several hundred feet, a hundred yards down this zipline, the ride of your life. The difference between having the harness and trusting the harness, I mean, it's like two different things. And it's the same with the promises of God. Let me say to everyone in the room, if you've placed your faith in Christ and you've trusted him for your salvation, you believe he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and raised again, took the penalty you deserve. You believe that, you trust that. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Please understand, you have all the promises of God. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. So if you have Christ, you have all the promises. So just know that if you know Christ in the room, that there's no one in the room that's got more promises than you do. We all have them. Well, then why do we all grow different? We're different places. Because this is so normal. This is just the Christian life. Because all of us aren't trusting the promises in the same way. That's okay. It's okay. That's why we're here. So that 
You can sit next to someone and turn to them and say, I've been there, you can trust it. It's okay, you can't now, but I'm praying in time you will. That's how, you know, we're at different places of growth. But we all, listen, we all have the promises, but we all are not trusting them to the same degree. Don't substitute having the promise of God and trusting it. Abram, because when you read the story, please know Abram had the promise of God. And in this instance, he trusted it and earned a great victory. No earthly power is greater than the person who trusts the promise of God. Now, why can I say that? And I say that dogmatically. Because to have the promise, to trust the promise, is to actually have God. That's why a person who trusts the promise is greater than any earthly power. Because it's to have God himself. Well, we always ask, so what? We always stop at the end, try to, to say, okay, what do I do with that? Well, let me ask you to stop and ask the question, so what? I don't know where you are today. I don't know whether you need to pick up the sword. I don't know whether God's got you to a place where you need to let it go and drop back and wait. Talk about faith, waiting, or maybe a little bit of both. I, I don't know. What I want you to consider in these moments is what might God be inviting you to do? What does faith look like for you right now? Literally, today, these days. I also want you to know that we're in good company when we consider faith because some of us sit here and go, I can't do it. And I want you to know, neither can I. I want you to know this life of faith is impossible. You can't. But I also want to remind you that Jesus himself lived by faith. See, sometimes we get, we get in our heads, we go, no, he was God. He didn't have to exercise faith. He was fully God He was fully man, and in his humanity, he lived by faith. He lived holding the promises of his father and holding his reality. Hebrews 12, 2, great cloud of witnesses. The second verse goes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you hear that? In other words, Jesus held the promise, there is going to be joy before me, but he also held his reality. I must endure the cross. And on both, Jesus was a man of faith. So whether it's letting go or whether it's whether it's picking up the sword, I I want us to understand you can't do either one. But Christ has done what we couldn't do. And because he lives in us by his spirit, you see, when we depend on him, Jesus, I can't, would you, would you reproduce your faith in and through me? Would you change my heart? Would you enable me to trust you to let go, to pick up the sword? That's the Christian life, the life of dependence upon Christ who lives in us to do what we could never do. He has done. So 
Where are you right now? I, I want you to think about this for a moment because I'm going to ask you to do something and you need to kind of process these thoughts. What is God calling you to do right now? Just talk to him. Is it pick up the sword in an area? Is it, is it let it go? Is it both? What might that be? Would you consider that for a moment? Let's stand together. I'm going to dismiss you a little bit different today. I mentioned that this is a safe place. Church is a safe place, and I pray fellowship is for you to process faith. But I will tell you this, it's never meant to be comfortable. And so I'm going to invite you to do something that move you out of your comfort zone a little bit, but that's the life of faith. I'm going to ask you to invite you to take a little step of faith here. You know, when I invite you to do something, you don't have to. So never feel like, and I got to do that. No, you don't at all. But I'm going to invite you to, if you would like, to do this. Before you go out those doors, I'm going to invite you to turn to someone nearby. It could be a family member, spouse, friend, someone nearby. And all I want you to do, instead of greeting them and going, hey, glad you're at fellowship today or welcome to I want you to turn to someone and all I want you to say to them is, I think God's calling me to pick up the sword. Don't tell them why or what it's about. Don't do that. Or you turn to someone and just say, I sense... I sense it's about letting this go and waiting. Or you might turn to someone and say, I think, he's, I think it's a little bit of both. Or you may turn to someone and literally say, this is good. I have no idea what, <laughs> I, 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 you know, that's okay too. But, but just articulating that moves it from our head to our heart in ways that God uses that to change us. So, Share that with someone nearby. God bless.